0: assert my firm belief
1: that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement
0: with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort, but less peace. More connectivity, but less connection. More information, but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is The Paradox Podcast.
2: So it took me getting good enough at it
0: to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough
2: at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that have you the will and determination to do anything
0: about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 14, I chatted with Jeff Lewis, technology investor and founder of Bedrock Capital, about the noble lies that exist all around us in society, the geopolitics of TikTok, why algorithms are the new oil, how searching for narrative violations is different from contrarianism, his quest to move from Canada to the US that started at age 11, and the types of founders and companies he's looking to invest in. In 2019, Jeff was named as one of the top 100 venture capitalists in the world by CB Insights and the New York Times. Previously as a partner of Founders Fund for over five years, Jeff was an early lead investor in companies including Lyft, Wish, Privateer Holdings, Bank, and Riggo. Prior to joining Founders Fund in 2012, Jeff was a founder himself. As co-founder and CEO of Top Guest, he created a loyalty software platform that counted United Airlines, Hilton Worldwide, and Virgin America as clients. Jeff is someone I've enjoyed getting to know online and offline. His temperature check vlog on YouTube is fantastic, and his insights are both thought-provoking and original. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jeff Lewis. Jeff, thanks for making time to join me on the Paradox Podcast. Super excited about this conversation. It's kind of funny. The last time we caught up back in February, this was just as COVID-19 was ramping up. And so a lot has changed since then. What would you say is the number one thing that you've learned in the last six or seven months? And what's the number one thing that you'll do differently in the future as a result of that learning?
1: Uh, well, you know, I'd say there's a tactical thing and then maybe a, a more esoteric strategic thing. So the tactical thing would be, I think, when we met in February in SF, Kyle, this was, I think, sort of February 20, 23rd or 24th, and I was hardcore wiping every surface down. The guy was like, this thing is getting transmitted via fomites. I need to be wiping every surface down. I, I can't be like touching anybody or breathing shared air, which ended up being true. But the the thing that I've changed is I've stopped wiping everything down with Clorox wipes. So that's the number one thing that's changed since February right <laughs> Over that that affliction. I'd say more generally, the thing that I've learned, there's a sense in which you would have expected the whole sort of a global shared experience, this global pandemic, it all happens at the same time. You'd have expected it to be a sort of a societal catharsis, this sort of moment in time where, we sort of come together as a country in the United States, and the world sort of comes together, joins forces to combat sort of a common enemy in this, in this coordinated, bipartisan, putting aside differences way. And in fact, sort of the opposite happened, and it sort of led to a further fracturing of not only sort of the society in the United States, but more generally the globe. So that, that actually was a surprising development. We actually did think that the virus somehow would have cut through uh, and change the, just the the trajectory we, we were on, maybe long term in a positive way, but ultimately I don't think that's happened. And then I'd say the second piece would be the bizarre thing about it is, you know, it's actually really accelerated the income inequality. Uh, so all of the things that one was worried about before the virus, it sort of dramatically accelerated all of those trends, and so sort of, been sort of, so many ways, one could make money over the last six months, if one was only paying attention to what was going on. And, I, and I'm actually surprised that so few people are paying attention to what, what was happening. So those are, those are more than one answer. But
0: No, that's great. That's awesome. There's lots unpacked there. And as far as wiping down packages, I feel like it was a critical turning point for me when I stopped quarantining my UPS packages. So there was a good, like, a good two, three months where I was really letting them sit outside for two or three days. And I would bring them in and wipe them down. You know, pretty quickly, I think around May or June, that stopped. So that was kind of a key point for me. I similarly thought and I think at the beginning actually there was a little more setting aside of differences you could kind of notice it maybe on twitter where it's especially vitriolic folks did seem maybe kind of in that march time frame which march felt like a decade obviously to pull together a little bit or at least lay down their arms but then we quickly retreated back into sort of our tribalistic thing that we've been doing for you know 2019 2018 probably back to 2016 and even before that probably because it was comfortable and i think it's a little bit disappointing and then as you said you know that fight has become a lot more macro a lot more global obviously and particularly with what's happening with china not just with covid-19 but everything's getting politicized the mass are getting politicized you know tiktok's getting politicized and so that was certainly surprising to me and then to your last point it definitely has accelerated some trends that probably are very positive things like telemedicine the, the sense i have is though the acceleration of change just feels very very intense and it's a lot to track and i've been watching your temperature checks to help me process you know a lot of what's going on it's a wild time to be sure yeah yeah absolutely so we'll get back to talking about some of this other stuff uh, that we just touched on but i wanted to kind of give our audience some context and some background on you can you share a story either from childhood or early adulthood that just strongly influenced who you are today? Yeah, happy to.
1: So I sort of had these two experiences when I must have been 11 years old. These two experiences happened i in very quick succession when I was 11 years old. So I grew up in sort of a, you know, the son of two school teachers and a sort of very suburban, almost borderline rural type upbringing in Canada and in Calgary, Canada. And I, I had this sort of double experience where in 93, we got our first computer in the house, and uh, immediately, through a friend discovered SimCity, and they had just released SimCity 2000 in 93, and the game developer was Maxis. And I, from the time I was like eight or nine years old, I had a very weird obsession that your listeners probably uh, won't be able to relate to, and that I was obsessed with drawing, architectural drawings, and so I sort of like locked myself in my room for hours at night. I was not very coordinated, so I didn't play baseball or anything, but uh, that was a popular pastime in my neighborhood: baseball and hockey. But I was great at these architecture drawings, and I ended up drawing cities. And so when SimCity came out, I was just enamored. And I, I became literally obsessed with SimCity at the age of 11. So much so uh, that I emailed Maxis. And I think maybe in the first email that I sent, I think I set up a Hotmail. Actually, I don't even know if Hotmail existed. I may have had to use the ISP email address that we had on the, on the PC. That I emailed the Maxis company that i was like i love sim city and i uh, could i come work for them they emailed me back well you're only 12 years old and you're canadian and you, you can't really hire canadians <laughs> and, and so <laughs> that was like, that was the first part of the experience and then like a week later the dad of my friend who lived across the street his dad worked for i think it was sun microsystems i can't actually remember and they had some sort of crazy run up in their stock or something such that like my friend's like oh my dad made like two million dollars and we grew up in like a very like houses cost like $150,000, like it wasn't like a wealthy neighborhood. And I was like, whoa, like what's that company? What's Sun Microsoft doing? They're like, it's a software company. I'm like, wait, like there's this other software thing I'm obsessed with. And that really keyed me in. There was this whole world of software businesses that were being built. And, and more importantly, that it was happening in the United States. And so hmm. the company that my friend's dad worked for was this American company. You know, Maxis was like, you're 12 and you're Canadian. I was like, well, I can't change the fact that I'm 12, but I can change the fact that I live in Canada. That sort of set me on a path that I somehow have to get into technology, into the United States, into Silicon Valley. End up taking a very roundabout road to get here, but uh, that sort of was the the initial kindling, I think, for for getting into technology in in the way that I, I am now.
0: I love that you sent your first cold email at 12 in like 1993. That was probably one of the first cold emails ever on the internet. It may
1: have been, yeah.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah. It seems like maybe the connective tissue between the Sims obsession and then this company, Sun Microsystems, that your friend's dad invested in was this idea that new worlds were being built. And in the game, you were obviously fascinated with the idea of bringing this passion to life. I incidentally actually was really weirdly into drawing architectural stuff, too. As a kid, Uh I I wanted to be an architect, but then I realized I had to be good at math and math was not really my thing. And I kind of put the drawings away. But yeah, it seems like then the insight or the early insight came that, you know what, if I want to be part of building these new worlds, I got to go to the place where the building is happening. And the epicenter, of course, ended up being Silicon Valley. You mentioned sort of the circuitous route that you took to sort of get where you are now, and obviously there's a long story there. What's the shorter version of that story? Because I think it was pretty nonlinear in a, in a really sort of special way.
1: Very, very nonlinear. So I was like, well, what can I learn from your career? Like, what lessons can you impart? And I'm like, you actually can't learn anything from from my story. Because it was, I think it was super idiosyncratic, and you know, I'd say that. The sequencing was basically, so I, I grew up in a context in Canada where we were so middle class, like the idea of going to school in the U.S. for college was not even like a thing that was mm-hmm. in the zeitgeist thing I would do. So like I didn't even take the SAT. I didn't apply to any colleges in the U.S. I went to the best school that I could get into in Canada uh, and and then realized in like junior, senior year, I need to somehow work in the U.S. And so when I was graduating college, I had an offer from a a consulting firm in Canada, from an iBank in Canada, and then I had one offer from a company I'd interned at uh, during my sophomore and junior summers, Procter & Gamble, because they knew me and I kept saying I want to be in the US, I want to be in the US, they were willing to sponsor me for a green card and I actually opted to turn down the more sort of sexy, prestigious jobs at the iBank and the consulting firm to go move to Cincinnati, Ohio and work at P&G, because I wanted my green card. And so I was like, this is mm-hmm. not about like working at P&G and living in Cincinnati. This is about, I need my green card so I can be in the US. So that was my first move. Ended up incidentally, sort of, there's a sense which I feel like I was at P&G, right place, right time. So it was, you know, sort of mid 2000s, you know, before the explosion of the next wave of, you know, Facebook launched the same year that I sort of started at P&G. So sort of, Quite early in the explosion, this next wave of internet companies. Google was doing their Dutch auction or something, IPO, so it's still quite early. And I, I was put in a role where I actually did get to launch a business at PG. And so I launched the Tide to Go uh, stain Pen. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of the brand manager in charge of that whole project. And so I got to manage a PL and do marketing and branding and all of that. So there, even though it was a big company, I was sort of the, the most entrepreneurial the part of the large company. So that was kind of cool. A, and then B, I saw out of the corner of my eye, a bunch of friends starting to use Facebook, LinkedIn, these tools, and I kept advocating we have to do like social app. Ad- like we didn't even really do search advertising at the time. Like hmm. it was like a big project to like do a website. Like it was like a yeah. $50,000, like six month project to get a website up for pride. I was like, we need to do Facebook ads for pride to go like that's our demographic. It's like college students and people like laughed me out of the room such that I was like, okay, I need to like get out of Cincinnati now. And so the day I got my green card, I basically packed up and moved to San Francisco and landed there in sort of uh, late 2006, early 2007. And really my goal was initially I was sort of working with P&G, helping them to build relationships with tech companies. And my goal was like, I have to somehow get a job at a tech company. And then again, somewhat serendipitously met a number of the early PayPal folks. Ended up getting recruited to work at, uh, at the hedge fund that Peter Thiel was working on at the time, Clarium Capital. That led me to meet my co-founder of my startup, TopGuest, wow. which was a SaaS product for loyalty programs. We left Clarium right after the financial uh, <laughs> crisis of, of 2008, uh, started TopGuest in 2009 sold it in 2011. And then I was uh, asked to join Founders Fund in in 2012. So there's sort of lots of weird steps along the way, but I, I think it's actually given me a set of experiences that sort of very few people around have. So that sort of gives me such a weird way that I have a frame that I think very few others do on things.
0: Yeah, the path dependence on that story is fascinating. And also, I think being from Canada, but also having this awareness of what was happening in the United States, it's kind of this insider outsider perspective that I think is really, really great and and unique. And I think that comes through in your temperature check episodes on YouTube now. I've been following them, kind of kicked off the beginning of the pandemic and it become a general part of my information diet. One of the most interesting episodes you did, I think it was maybe in March or April, was on the topic of noble lies. And I hadn't really heard it articulated in that way before. Can you talk about what a noble lie is and where these sort of pop up in society?
1: Sure, so the concept noble lie was originally coined by Plato in his work, The Republic, which I'd actually encourage folks to read, I, I do actually think sort of an underrated sidebar, an underrated thing folks can do is actually read the classics and read the great books. And so saying like everyone's able to do and very few people do it, but I encourage everyone to do it. So Plato came up with this concept that was later adopted by other thinkers, other philosophers. The idea of a noble lie essentially is like a myth, something that's not true. It can be of either a political or a religious nature propagated by a priesthood or by an elite in a social construct to sort of maintain harmony or um, sort of advance a cause that one believes to be noble, that one believes to be good. And so they've been around forever, you know, hiding just beneath the surface. And in the context of COVID, you know, I'd say when I first kicked off the temperature check our TV series, which folks can subscribe to on YouTube at, at Jeff Lewis TV, um, I first kicked off the the Temperature Effect TV series in March. It did feel like the the U.S. government was 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 trying to do some noble lie stuff, and and so for specifically the like you don't need a mask. I, I was like, okay, well maybe that's a noble lie. Um, but clearly, it's not true. Maybe it's noble. There was sort of the sense in which I felt like the the global response was maybe leveraging noble lies. And now at this point, I actually think noble lies just can't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, in a political context. I do think in a business context, in a startup context, you can sort of ape the idea of Noble Lie. And so even I've been on the boards of businesses like Lyft and, and and during sort of really dark times when even the founders of these companies are like, we're just screwed, we're, we're going out of business. There's a sense in which as an entrepreneur, as a founder of one of these companies, you have to put on a brave face, you have to tell mm-hmm. a story, a narrative, your team around why the business is going to survive, what you're going to do. And I think sometimes those are noble lies that end up being able to will them into reality by telling them. And so I think it's an interesting concept in a business context, in a political context. I totally don't believe in it anymore. And then obviously it lives on in a religious context.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure obviously when Winston Churchill was giving his famous speeches during World War II and Britain was being bombed and we hadn't entered the war yet, There's probably a lot of noble lies that he told to try to keep the morale of the people high. And maybe that serves some purpose. I agree that I think noble lies have sort of outlived their usefulness. I think in the age of the internet, it just foments and propagates distrust at like a crazy level. The mass thing for me was just especially like I had such a strong reaction to that particular noble lie. I just knew that when they were saying that they don't work, that it was not true. I immediately went to actually Home Depot and bought like three or four N95s. I wasn't like hogging and building a big stash, but I wanted them for my commute into the city. And so that sort of seared into my mind. And now I'm kind of looking for other ones everywhere. What are some other noble eyes, maybe even pre-pandemic, like one or two examples that a lot of people would just gloss over and not even acknowledge them as being real, but that you think would help us start to train our eyes to see these in the future?
1: I mean, they're they're everywhere. And so it's as simple as like, you know, in the Bay Area in New York, there was the plastic panic, the plastic ban, they're like you're not allowed to have plastic straws or plastic bags or plastic silverware. For environmental reasons, it was just a complete BS story where if you actually dig into it, these things have no impact on global warming, on the environment. It's, it's sort of arguably the paper bags, the paper straws actually have a, a more significant impact there's some paper utensil lobbying organization somewhere that managed to convince the city councils of San Francisco to ban plastic, and then it's put it under this sort of sanctimonious guise of we're, we're sort of making the city better. You know, that would be an example, and, and now that just feels extraordinarily dated at this point. Like the idea of having a plastic ban in the city, I mean, that just feels like completely like something from another century or something like that. So, I think at least that's one. You know, I'd say a noble lie also exists around, and, and I was like trying to find, well, what's the startup context? What's the entrepreneurial context? And I'd say another one would be that's more sort of startup specific. I'd say sort of the idea of equity is kind of a noble lie in that, you know, in 75% of cases, the equity actually isn't worth so mm-hmm. it. So if you pick the wrong startup to join, you're told this story and it is noble that like, you're, you're going to work hard. We're going to really achieve this mission. We're going to build this breakthrough product. And we're going to create a lot of equity value and you're going to capture some of that value. And when it works, it's an absolute life changer. It's a game changer in terms of wealth creation for an individual. And I've seen it work for people, companies that have been invested in it really is magical. And then 75% of the time, it, it, it's a noble lie. Uh, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't actually work. And so another example, more in a startup context, and then the biggest one of all, I would say is that the VC, you know, I'm a technology investor. I recently announced that I no longer self-identify as a venture capitalist. So I don't want anyone <laughs> to, so I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I invest in technology. We bedrock our technology investment firm. We're not yeah. venture capitalists, but the idea that VCs can meaningfully change the trajectory of your company and evolve these venture capital lists saying our involvement will in this meaningful way change the trajectory of your company. I think that that is a noble lie. It's noble for the VCs. Noble for the VCs. It's (laughs) certainly noble
0: for the VCs to say, you know, if you pick us and put us on your cap table, you're going to learn a lot from us. I think, and you can speak to this better than I can, but my sense is the majority of the time, the VCs that are lucky enough to be on a founder's cap table are gonna generally probably eight times out of 10, nine times out of 10, learn way more from the founder. That's the benefit of being a VC is you are capturing insights and secrets across a broad portfolio of people and companies and cultures. And so, yeah, of course there are investors that add value. It would be not true to say that they don't add value, but I think we kind of invert through maybe a bit of a noble lie there. Switching gears a little bit, so the the tagline of your technology investment firm, we won't call it a, a VC firm, is, you know, in search of narrative violations, I think it's part of your personal brand as well, and it's filtered through this entire discussion so far. What is a narrative violation? Like, how do you define it? And then how does one build the muscle to become more aware of them, either in society or in company building, or again, across those dimensions that you mentioned?
1: Sure. Well, I'd say that narrative violation is this idea of, we use it in an investing-specific context. And so what we mean when we say narrative violation is, We are looking to invest in companies that are incongruent with narratives that don't fit into a popular narrative of the day that either goes directly contra popular narrative of the day or is just ignored by the narrative. And, and, you know, we think this idea of narrative violation aptly describes, frankly, all of the greatest technology investment opportunities that they're sort of either too one of a kind to fit into any sort of narrative or they violate what the narrative gatekeepers in the media would deem would deem plausible plausible or possible. You know, when I invested in Lyft in 2012, Uber was just a black car business. The popular narrative then was that this peer-to-peer model of regular people driving other regular people that Lyft pioneered would never work, and that even Mm -hmm. if it did, Uber was just so ruthless they would crush Lyft. You know, when Founders Funware used to be a partner before starting Bedrock, invested in SpaceX, it was right after the second rocket blew up, like that was a narrative violating investment. And implicit in this idea of narrative violations is a time scale element, which I think makes narrative violations something different from just contrarianism, because contrarianism means just being like contra popular sentiment, contra popular thinking. What's different about narrative violation is narratives can be true at one moment, untrue the next. And so there's sort of a time scale element in which something can be a narrative violation one year or one quarter uh, and then in the zeitgeist a popular narrative a few years later and you want to actually invest deploy capital at the moment in time when it's a narrative violation when it's not being captured by the popular narrative so yeah. like if you actually do the history you know the best time to invest in Tesla would have been when they IPO'd in, in like the early 2010s and the narrative then was clean tech is dead Kleiner perkins just lost basically the firm almost collapsed because of their clean tech investing. You know, the best time to invest in Tinder would have been 2012, when dating apps are always a fad. You know, Bitcoin was viewed as a huge bubble in 2013, that would have been the best time uh, to get in there. You know, when I invested uh, personally in via Founders Fund & Wish, was that was in 2014, and people thought that Amazon, you couldn't do anything uh, that wasn't a vertical, direct to consumer, vertical brand and e-commerce. And so there's a timescale element to it that we find uh, very powerful and helpful for us in driving our investment strategy at bedrock.
0: Yeah, it seems sort of interconnected also to the idea of a secret that maybe internally a startup believes, but it violates the narrative in some way. I mean, a really good example of this is, you know, even 18 months ago, two years ago, three years ago, starting your company completely remote was definitely anomalous. I mean, automatic, certain companies have been successful with that model, but it was definitely the narrative violation position. Now, in this case, we had a pandemic that completely accelerated this transition away from 100% co-location in an office all the time. No one saw that coming, but it's possible that had the pandemic not happened that over the course of the next five years, you know, we would have gradually shifted away from 100% co-location anyway. But yes, the right time to invest in remote work was right before the pandemic, or the right time to invest in homeschools was right before the pandemic. Switching gears again a little bit. So you sort of predicted in a tweet, I think it was last year, this TikTok geopolitical showdown, and you made a claim in a recent episode on your show that algorithms are the new oil. Can you unpack this idea that algorithms are the new oil?
1: Sure. So the basic idea is, is basically that uh, geopolitically speaking, the most important countries, the largest countries, most powerful countries are not going to be fighting over um, energy in the future. And so, if you actually look historically, um, a lot of the actual violent conflict over the past hundred years, there's been an energy element to it. I mean, again, the history on World War II is very recent. It's not clear that we actually even know the full history of World War Two yet, but certainly a large part of that history in addition to the atrocities of the Holocaust would be there was, there was an energy war story. There was an oil war element to it. Certainly the American exploits in the middle East has been a, a very significant oil energy component to it. And so the, the basic idea is that rather than fighting over energy uh, in the future, I think more and more uh, the geopolitical dynamics are going to center around control of these powerful algorithms. And I'd say that today, the most powerful algorithm in the world today would be Google's PageRank, far mm-hmm. So that is the most powerful algorithm in the world. And so, you know, there's talk of other algorithms, but by far the most powerful algorithm is the, is the Google PageRank algorithm. And so I think there's a sense which the Google PageRank algorithm is somehow at the nexus, at the center of geopolitical dynamics uh, for the next number of years. And then there are these sort of other ancillary algorithms that are gaining power um, that can influence the way people perceive the world, view the world, and therefore have a lot of geopolitical value. I think the TikTok algorithm is one such example, and is probably the fastest rising example in terms of adoption, importance. And again, it is a credit to the, the team at TikTok. Like I'm not yeah. gonna undercut at all their achievements. They've built truly a phenomenal algorithm and product, and then it's just unfortunate that because it's a Chinese the links to the Communist Party China um, can't distinguish the company from the, from the country, unfortunately, so that's the part where it gets very geopolitically alarming.
0: Yeah, certainly. And a prediction business is obviously a a tough business to be in. And where do you think this goes? I mean, it seems like obviously the administration's trying to uh, to sort of either force a divestiture of TikTok US or shut it down. Do you think we're going to have more of these sort of wars escalating over algorithms in the future? Or do you think we're going to find some sort of like a middle ground?
1: Uh, There's not going to be any middle ground. And so in one's own life, I think you always want to find a middle ground on things. And then in a geopolitical context where the states are this high, and we're in such a polarized environment, there's never going to be a middle ground. And then more to the point with TikTok specifically, there's a lot of money uh, up for grabs here. I mean, this business could be a, this could be a trillion dollar business in Mm -hmm. 10 years. I mean, you see the market caps of of some of these other companies, the FANG. I mean, this could be a FANG-like market cap company as an independent company. So people are wrestling for control of this asset. And certainly uh, there's a sense in which when these products automatically work, as like, like when you get it really right, with like an algorithmically driven product where it's all around user-generated content, yeah, whoever wh- whoever owns it, it's almost like it doesn't really matter. So it doesn't really, the, the, the executive team is not really gonna be able to either, even the executive team's totally incompetent. I would imagine the product continues to work and the company continues to get more and more valuable. So whether it's a consortium of U.S. investors that have to pay the U.S. Treasury like a finder's fee or something, which is absolutely I know. Tr- Trump's trying to get into the <laughs>
0: VC scout game. I thought that was funny. He wanted a cut of the deal.
1: <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Everyone's so, and, either hey, becoming
0: hey, a scout or raising a fund. Even Trump's getting into it. It's really
1: he read about Chelsea Clinton starting a VC firm and wanted yeah, to Yeah. so totally. something like that. But, but, <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, so no, I don't think there's going to be any middle ground, and whoever gets control of the company is, is going to make a tremendous amount of money off of it, and yeah. then hopefully data isn't used for uh, nefarious purposes, would be the hope.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so what's a company that you wish you could find right now, but you haven't found yet, or maybe you're not sure it even exists that you would like to invest in? I know that investors are always thinking about ideas and the founder that can actually connect with that idea and bring it into fruition. But what's an idea that's been floating around if you want to share it that uh, you haven't found a company for?
1: So I have two in the sort of I call like the belief, the faith space broadly. I have two and I'm actively working on, on both with different potential founders and, and people working in the early stages. That i'm very excited about so you know i think basically we're in a situation where people just lack meaning and certainly now that we're in, a, in the u.s still a pseudo semi lockdown semi quarantined in many parts of the country zone i think it's just that people are even more atomized people are very, feel very alone and i think that's just a huge problem and, and somehow you need to connect people with other people and give people meaning in life and so that leads me to two things one is is there an opportunity to build sort of a new system for life? Like I wouldn't call it a religion per se, but like a system for living that incorporates like everything from exercise to like philosophy to interpersonal communications and that's actually good and not like a scam or like a Scientology type thing, but like positive and like makes people better. That has broad appeal that you can do from home yeah. that doesn't have like an IRL component, but that's like holistic, that covers like all aspects of your life. So that that's sort of a, a business that I'm I'm very I think someone should be building and I'd love to invest in it. And then the other one would simply be how can we do a better uh, a better remote experience for Christianity and and, mm. and Judaism and the and the actual biblical biblical religions and Catholicism. How can we do a better virtual experience? Ben, I think you and I have talked about
0: this. Yeah, we've, we've talked about that before.
1: Bit, yep a little bit. But I, I still think that there no one's quite cracked the code on on how to do that, and I think you could actually build a, you could build a pretty large and important company around just enabling faith leaders to, to have a better digital uh, experience and footprint. And it's the type of company that very few people in Silicon Valley would be interested in starting, so it's hard to get started because um, almost everyone in Silicon Valley is, a, is an atheist or agnostic. And so it's hard to get people to want to work on something that, that, that is related to Christianity.
0: Yeah, no, those are both two really good narrative violations. On the first idea, yeah, I feel like certain aspects of this have been unbundled. I just bought a Peloton; it hasn't arrived yet because it's on like a one and a half month delay. But that's sort of an experience that you get that's in home, but it is social and it's it's health oriented, and that's really good. And then you mentioned in the face space the church that I attend, which I've actually only ever been to in person once. It's in North Carolina. But they've been streaming since the beginning of the pandemic. And fortunately, they'd invested heavily in technology, you know, in the last several years before this. So they were kind of prepared for it. And it's really interesting because like, I think the first or second sermon where the pastor came up to preach, it it was weird because he's used to preaching in front of like two or 3,000 people and the room is empty because of COVID. And he kind of had trouble getting through, I think, the sermon or finding his rhythm. And he got off the stage and his staff is like, do you realize you just preached to the most number of people you've ever preached to in your life? Because they were streaming everywhere, and because of loneliness and maybe openness to exploring some sort of a faith experience, there was like a big surge in attendance. So I think those are two great places to invest. So in the last week, it feels like everyone's raising a fund—a rolling fund, a, you know, a, a traditional fund—and I think Angelus has done a good job of just continuing to push on what's possible in the investing realm. Do you feel like we have? too many investors and not enough builders? Or do you feel like the rise of the operator angels and these small seed funds is a net positive for the ecosystem?
1: Look, my whole MO on this is like, it's always individual specific. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. I I never want to make categorical critiques of a new development. So I think the angelist people are, are fantastic. I'm a huge fan of Naval and what that whole team is doing. I think a number of these individual solo capitalists, whatever you want to call them, doing rolling funds seem like great operators, great folks, and I wish them really all the all of the best with, with what they're doing. You know, ultimately as an investor, it's my job, it's our job at Bedrock. Like if we want to invest in selling, it's up to us to try and win the deal uh, and get the investment. And so it's certainly not my place to critique any of these things. You know, I'd say the one thing that I, I would note would be that uh would be more of a an observation about the trends. So it's not about the specific people or the fact that it's happening. Sort of an observation about the trend would be, I think the fact that there is so much more energy and heat right now on the investing side of the equation than there is on the company building side of the equation uh, is a comment around the fact that we are in an environment where it is better to be a seller of something than a buyer. And, uh, and that's what actually scares me. And so, you know, if you're hmm. raising a fund, you're selling your ability as an investor, you're selling your access to deals. So raising a fund is different from actually deploying the capital. When you're raising a fund, you're a seller, when you're deploying the capital into companies, you're a buyer. So there's a sense in which these rolling funds on AngelList, you can just be constantly raising more and more capital. And so even though you're actually investing it, there's a sense in which it's anchored more on the capital raising which is a comment on it's a better time to be a seller of something than a buyer. Uh, and Mm. then similarly the way in which the valuations in the private companies and public companies, anything technology, the valuations have just skyrocketed uh, since, since COVID. Um, you know, there's a a sense in which that makes sense. So it's the the double entendre there. So, you know, it makes sense in that all of the digitization has been accelerated. So it makes sense that, that these things should be worth more. But then there's probably only a few of them that capture the the bulk of the value. And so Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense that every tech company is worth so much more. It it probably makes sense that like 5% of the tech companies are worth a lot more. And so I do worry that this trend means that actually asset prices are just way inflated.
0: Sure. A lot of money floating around in search of places to park for a little while. That, that resonates with me, certainly. So for this next thing, I've been trying this with guests recently, the last couple episodes, this little turn the tables thing where you're temporarily the host of the show, which you host your own show. So it should be easy. And you can ask me any question you want um, and I'll do my best to answer it.
1: Well, cool. well, thank you for that. It's very gracious of you. I guess I'm just curious. So you're like super successful uh, operator, executive. Uh, you know, you're at open door, now you're fast. Why do the podcast? Like what do you get out of doing the podcast?
0: It's a great question. I think there's a couple layers to it. It was almost a year ago exactly, probably late summer last year, where I felt the desire to do it. And I think number one, I had a lot of creative energy that just needed to go somewhere. So I think when Open Door was 50 people, there was so much building and creation that a lot of that was just happening at work. I think once Open Door was 2,000 people, it wasn't that there wasn't a lot of building going on. There was But I had extra creative energy sort of on the table to deploy. And so the podcast was a way to do that. I think I love learning from really smart people like yourself. There's a sense in which these are conversations I would like to have anyway. (laughs) The podcast is almost like a premise for having the conversations and the fact that they get shared out and people hopefully find value in them and respond to them is sort of icing on the cake. And then I probably learn more from the last 15 or so episodes that I've done than any class that I took in college, right? Because the amount of insights that get packed in a one-hour discussion are pretty high velocity. And so this is also just a way to continue learning. And so those are my main reasons. But uh, yeah, it's, it's evolved from there. The last few questions are questions that I ask every guest, and you can take them in any direction you want. The first may be a question you've answered before from the person who originated it or at least popularized it, kind of the famous Peter Thiel interview question. And you've already answered this a couple of different ways in other parts of the conversation, but what's something you believe that most people don't?
1: Uh, well, my rule on that question uh, is that I, I never answer the question with an audience. So if, <laughs> it's a question that can only be answered in a one on one non-broadcast conversations. I like that. That's,
0: that's actually a very good and unique answer to this question. I like that.
1: <laughs> that people should not answer the question when asked. That's
0: and that's the do. thing that no one says because everyone feels <laughs> that they have to answer the question. So that's one of the Correct. best answers. Great. What's a problem that you're concerned about that most people aren't or a problem that you think other people don't pay enough attention to?
1: Yeah. I would say at, at always sort of context specific. I think at this at this moment of time, I think people generally aren't concerned enough about the potential long-term effects of catching the coronavirus so it's been around six months there's a like large variance in the, in the, in the outcomes. Uh, certainly the death rate is super low which is great so it's, I'm a yeah. lot less worried about it than I was in March. but I think we've just completely shifted away from like you know no one talks about it anymore really and yet at the same time you've got people wearing masks everywhere and there's you know people are still dying. And a, a number of the emerging studies show that, you know, you can have lasting damage to your brain, these lasting respiratory implications. Mm-hmm. And we just, the time scale is so short, we just don't know enough. And so that's a problem I'm concerned about. I'm really concerned about what are the long-term, like it's, it's about like, yeah, fine, like most of you are going to survive, but like what's the long-term health and longevity impact for most people? Sure. We don't know the answer. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about that.
0: Yeah, in one sense, the time horizon, right, is very short. We don't know a lot about this disease yet or the long-term implications. On the other hand, there's clearly pandemic fatigue. I I felt it myself, so I can relate to it directly where folks are just exhausted of talking about it, thinking about it, acting upon it. So yeah, I think that's a really great answer. And I think it's important for all of us to just continue to stay vigilant and do the best we can to, I think, as you said in a recent episode on temperature check, just be like the CEO of your own personal life or the founder of your own personal life and find kind of personal product market fit around health, wellness, taking care of yourself and the people you care about. So couldn't agree more. Last question, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received?
1: Well, I'm on the record as being very skeptical of most advice. And the reason why is that, and so I'll, get, I'll end up answering the question, but I'll do it in a roundabout way. And so I generally think that the advice that people tend to really listen to Uh, is the advice that one gets from sort of the most successful person that that one knows. And so you sort of have this sort of iconoclastic entrepreneur or person in your life that, like, uh, you don't really know very well, but they're, like, just hyper-successful. Or you randomly meet someone at a a party or a conference. You want to ask them for advice because they're so much more successful than you. I actually generally think that type of, like, generic advice from a super-successful person that you don't really know well tends to be of limited value because they don't know your specific they their pattern matching and transposing their experience onto you without really knowing you. And the, and the best advice that I've gotten actually from someone I'm very close to is like the only advice that once you really factor into decision-making is advice from people who know you extremely well. And there's, mm-hmm. there's only a small handful of people that, that all of us have who, who know each of us really, really well. So I I, I tend to, the best advice I've gotten is only listen to advice from from people who know you extremely well. And even then, you know, advice is just one input. In Silicon Valley, everyone's all about advice. and I'm probably quite short. uh, I'm short (laughs) advice.
0: That's a great answer. I love that. I'm a, no, seller, I, I'm a
1: seller of advice. You're a seller buyer. of
0: advice. No, I, yeah. I totally get it. Yeah. If I think in my own life, look, the best advice probably comes from my wife. She knows me the best. She can cut through the bullshit. Advice usually is packaged with a lot of, you have to look at what the incentives are. And yeah, someone that knows you that has your best interests at heart is going to have better insight into what you might want to do. And again, you just take that as one input of many. Jeff, this has been an awesome conversation. Super fun. We've covered a lot of ground. If folks, particularly early stage founders, want to get connected with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Two ways. One is Twitter, just blue, uh, spelt G-L-E-W. Other would be this nascent YouTube channel. I'm desperately trying to get some subscribers (laughs) uh, on Jeff Lewis TV. And Jeff is with a G, G G-O-F-F. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Yeah. Encourage everybody to check out Jeff's uh, awesome temperature check YouTube channel. And yeah, maybe we'll do it again some other time. Sounds great, man. Have a good one. Thanks. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. For episode number 13, I chatted with angel investor and entrepreneur Balaji Srinivasan about the rise of cloud cities, the Oregon Trail generation, a decentralized model for citizen journalism, and a path
2: forward for tech and media. I think this is the next step for technology after starting new companies, or to be more precise, start a new company, Google, start a new community, Facebook, start a new currency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, start a new city, That may be what's next. And the key thing here is you can start a city cloud first. And that's very different than everything that people normally think about, where they normally think about, okay, where are you gonna get the land and how are you gonna build it and, and so on and so forth. You actually start with the people and the culture first and you do the architecture in VR, and you've got something which you de-risk because you're doing it virtually first. And that allows for a much wider funnel. And it means that just like whether you think this is good or bad, cryptocurrency brought lots of people into thinking about finance and thinking about micro and macroeconomics. A lot of people became semi-pro economists and traders and financiers in the same way that social media turned a lot of people into publishers. I think that VR is gonna turn a lot of people into architects.
0: If you think about the existing cloud communities, whether it's crypto or whether it's any others, are there any that you're particularly bullish on making it to land first as an actual real city? Or do you think of it in a slightly different way?
2: That's a good question. So at least the particular methodology that I'm talking about here is in a sense something where you could apply it to any online community and you could turn a community into a virtual city and then some fraction of those you might materialize in a physical place. This is what happened, by the way, in the 1800s U.S. You had these sort of communes and whatnot arise in the Midwest. So let's just do the thought
0: experiment where we zoom 20 years in the future, and these exist in various different forms. What would some of the benefits be of living in one? And how do you think traditional cities, the incumbent San Francisco's and Moscow's and London's of the world would react to these brand new cities that are springing
2: up all over the world on a cloud-first basis? So I think, well, first, simply being able to start a new city. If you have one innovation in that city, for example, you put a line through the regulation stopping self-driving cars, or you make it a city that is highly friendly to stem cells, right? You don't necessarily need funding for the city. What you need is sort of the absence of a barrier. And that doesn't necessarily cost you anything. You jettison, let's say, outmoded 20th century regulations. It's similar to the concept of special economic zones and how successful they've been in Asia.
0: That's a wrap for this episode of the paradox podcast if you'd like to connect you can follow me on twitter at kyle tibbets if you enjoyed the episode please rate and review us on itunes to spread the word and until next time take care of yourself